it straight. It's all there, ain't it? Everything marked, everything membered. Yeah, you kept it real good. You ain't been slack at all. Well, what are we waiting for? That ain't me. You got the wrong guy. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where nothing beats the sensation of disappointing the children in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 58, which begins with the Waiting Ones showing Max their latest painting, and it ends with the children begging Max to fly them away from the wasteland. Okay, campers, rise and shine, and don't forget your booties, because it's a cold one out there today. It's cold out there every day. What is this, Miami Beach? Not hardly, and you know you can expect hazardous travel later today with that, you know, um, that, uh, blizzard thing. That blizzard thing? That blizzard thing? Oh, well, here's the report. The National Weather Service is calling for a big blizzard thing. <laughs> yes, they are, but you know there's another reason why today is especially exciting. Especially cold. Especially cold, okay. But the big question on everybody's lips. On their chapped lips. On their chapped lips, right? Who are our guests for today's minute? Sean German and Dave Palace. That's right, Woodchuck Chuckers. It's the hosts of The, the Groundhog, Groundhog Minute. minute. I am brought to tears. <laughs> Son of a gun, they did it better than we ever did. Oh my god, I was gonna say, yeah, that's uh that's more work than we ever put into it. So uh, a tip of the cap. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We are not going to do that every day. I was going to ask. <laughs> or are we? <laughs> Thank you so much, Rick and Julia, for having us. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy, though. Yes, up front to the listeners, I've only seen Fury Road, so I'm going to give my best impressions and opinions about the minutes today. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. This is quite the set of minutes to come in blind on. So I'm so very curious as to what your initial reactions, Dave, are to these three minutes. All right. I think these minutes fit in well with the religious fervor aspect of Fury Road is kind of mirrored in these minutes. Yeah. First impression uh, was I'm watching this and I'm like, I felt like almost Spielberg stole uh, this for Hook. Mm. I, I felt I felt like I felt like I was watching a, a proto Hook scene here, you know, where they want this this older person they see as their uh, this idol they've been waiting for for years uh, completely disappoint them. He's got his own mission. That's why I felt like uh, watching this. That was, that was my first impression. Ah, it's funny that you mentioned Hook, because that's exactly why we chose to review Hook five minutes at a time on our Patreon page. Yeah, yeah check, it all checks out. All It's all connected. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so if anyone's been complaining about the fact that we're talking about a non-post-apocalyptic movie on the Patreon page, haha, we did it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of these lost boys and girls that are imminently going to be disappointed by a person that they look up to, we're going to start off this minute with Savannah. She has just done this crazy little hand motion last Friday to quiet all the children down. And she leads in with, and somebody did come. And all the children together, they start doing their Chuck Norris chant, <laughs> chanting Walker, Walker in a very <laughs> reverent manner. And off to the side, Gecko and Mr. Skyfish, they lift this screen, for lack of a better term, out of the way. And we get to see their latest painting that they've added to the story wall. Oh. Uh Oh, they just added it? Yeah. Like overnight, like while Max was unconscious? Yeah, this is completely new. Oh, okay. 
Oh, I did not know that. I thought <laughs> that that painting had been there and then that was a recording of what Captain Walker looked like. And I'm like, how is that so much the same as Max? No wonder they think that Max is Walker. He looks exactly the same. Down to the monkey and the gray hair and everything. But now I this makes so much more sense. This is a completely <laughs> different movie than I've been watching for decades. Yes. <laughs> I've learned so much now. Yeah, no, I when I, I got my impression though that it was either this is either relating earlier to the minute than the movie or to the previous films. I thought somebody was describing Max and that he helped somebody out, and so that got passed down and eventually was put on this wall. See, that's how I got the opinion of it. Was that like somebody described this man with like, you know, the, the aging hair and a and a leather outfit. And a, a a partner monkey apparently uh, saving people. So that's why I thought I thought like oh this is you know the way they see Max and I and I thought you know his arms are stretched out. I was like a, like a Christ figure. I was like they're seeing Max like we would see Jesus on the cross. You know and we go oh yeah he's the savior. You see that guy? He's gonna save you. That's how I got the impression from it. But it's funny that you're saying it's just just a new thing on the wall. Oh yeah, the paintings on this wall have been the same for years as they've been doing this tell. And I have to say. I'm very impressed with the children and how ritualized they are with this presentation, how quickly they adapt to the addition of a new picture. Mm -hmm. Because maybe I'm off base, maybe there's some sort of hidden lore where this painting is old. But to me, it looks really new because it is so purposely Max. Their depiction of Captain Walker before this point was a little lithograph slide of a pilot standing in front of a plane that's taking off. Mm -hmm. Which we don't even know if that was actually Captain Walker. It was an airline pilot right i would i'm i'm assuming that that's not actual captain walker <laughs> yeah i think that but then again i thought i thought this was <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was too <laughs> like where Though did he get a it, monkey yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and so I'm wondering, how do they know, how do they make the connection between the monkey and Max? Because they arrive at different times, right? Well, this is something that was skipped over in the movie, but was contained in the novelization. When Savannah found Max, mm -hmm. and I don't remember if we mentioned this back when we were talking about this scene. I think we did. But when Savannah discovered Max, brought him back to the crack in the earth, and the initial group of gatherers were standing around Max, Sally Ann, the name of the monkey, mm -hmm. jumped out of Max's jacket and they were startled by the sudden appearance of the monkey and they said, oh my gosh, what is that? And they're like, oh, that must be Captain Walker's co-pilot. <laughs> because he's smaller and uglier. <laughs> So, let's not insult the monkey. I'm just I'm, I'm mesmerized. So <laughs> yeah. So one of the one of these things that I it, I hadn't noticed until watching the movie one minute at a time. Something that goes it goes by very quickly if you're just watching the movie like a normal person would is the little the little monkey painting with the people on his wings mm -hmm. to mirror Captain Walker. They are taking this whole idea of Sally Ann being a co-pilot to its logical, logical conclusion. conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Max is going to fly them to safety, but Sally Ann is also going to fly them to safety as well. Yes. Yes, they're mm -hmm. going to work together. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's the tip off. If, if I had noticed the little monkey drawing next to the man drawing, then it's unless 
you know, unless I'm thinking that Captain Walker had a monkey as well, which is just too much of a coincidence. We we don't think that. So that's, I'm willing to say no. Okay, he didn't have a monkey. <laughs> so then that's that's the indication. That's the thing I've been missing for thirty years to to tell you that this is this is a new this is the unveiling. This is the premiere of a new entry into their gallery and a new chapter to their story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's clearly meant to honor Captain Walker slash Max yeah. that they have created a representation of him for their permanent records. Yeah, that's very flattering. It is, and it doesn't go over that great. Well, I mean... Which is sad for them. I feel bad. It is what it is. It's certainly a child's painting. It's not a Degas or a Monet or anything hey, like that. Hey, it's pretty good. It's not bad for finger paints and whatnot. For river mud and... Yeah. In earlier movies, I'm assuming that Max at some point was... I'm not going to say a family man, but I'm assuming he was protecting his family. I'm guessing in the first, in the original film, or like, like, because I feel um, my question is, is that is this like the first time in a long time that Max has really had to interact with like children and who have like this innocent mind and they're optimistic rather than like savages that just want to control and torture? It's certainly the first time in a long time that he's had to deal with children in this quantity. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yes, and you're right. He was a family man, and he was attempting to protect his family when they were killed. Okay. So he failed at protecting them. But in every movie before this, well, both of them, there have been children present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Because in the first movie, you have Max's literal son. And then in the second movie, he has his surrogate son represented by the feral kid who is more or less innocent because he's feral. He doesn't have the corrupting influence of mankind to <laughs> uh-huh. taint yes. his character. Yeah. I'm guessing the same with these kids. It seems like we we uh, we have a we have a, a lo- island of lost children mm-hmm. that are not mm-hmm. controlled by some psychotic leader. Yeah. Right. There's no Lord of the Flies situation where one of these children is is forcing the other kids to hunt down and kill the fat one with a giant rock. Yeah, I was I was about to ask <laughs> yeah. that, like if, if there was a, a Lord of the Fly situation before Max came, but... No, they seem to get along pretty well. Although that, so that leads to a question, or I guess a statement and a question I had in terms of just how long has it been since Max has dealt with children and how long since his own son. And and one of the things I was wondering is how, you know, is, is Max thinking about Sprague? Is he thinking about his child and how old would his child be? And, um, you know, another way that this podcast has changed the way I look at this movie for decades, I assumed that time in Mad Max land or world passed similar to time in our world. And so that this is five or six years after the events of the first movie, after Mad Max. And so Sprague would be seven or eight, would be among the younger children here among the the gatherers. Although one of the things I've learned listening to this podcast is that this is actually, what, about 15 years? 15 years after Road Warrior, yeah. Wow. And Road Warrior was three years after the first movie. Yeah, Sprague would be an adult. Sprague would be among the older, if not the oldest, of the people here. What is Max thinking? Is is part of his reaction to this crowd thinking about, well, where would, you know, where would my family be if this Pocky Clips hadn't happened? Where would Sprague be? And, and kind of how does that relate? 
to where these children are. And some of them are not, well, it's hard to tell. They're not so childish, but I mean, could be 17, could be 21, 22. But in, in that neighborhood, some of them are at least on the cusp of adulthood, if not adults already. And so I think he's got to be wondering, you know, what kind of adult would would my son have been if he had if he had the chance to grow up? <laughs> no, I no, I can't yep. answer that. I can't answer that. I, I, have, I have a question, but I want I want Sean's question answered first. I demand it. Well, I don't know. I don't yeah. know if there is I, an answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've definitely observed in the first two movies and going into this one where he's surrounded by these strange children out of you know, the crack in the earth, that Max has a definitive soft spot for children. Like, there's no arguing that. He's got a bit of a, I wouldn't say personal weakness when it comes to them. Well, but I, it, his, and it's not a weakness. It, I think it's a strength that through yeah, all his through what shell of a character yeah. starts to crumble a little bit when the kids yeah. start working on him. He's it's much harder for him to refuse them than it is an adult. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we won't get to it this week, but there's a cute little moment maybe two weeks from now that you'll be covering that that demonstrates that this hardened grizzled man with no name out of the wasteland there's still a there's still humanity in him there's still a soft spot for children oh absolutely and i think relating back to sprague i wonder if max continually over the years and decade that follows between the first movie and this movie mm -hmm. If he constantly sees Sprague as that one-year-old that was killed, or if he starts to think, oh, it's been this amount of time, Sprague would be about this old had he lived. And so he probably looks at someone like Slake mm -hmm. as the young man that Sprague could have grown up to be. Hmm. So the interactions that Max has with Slake are different than the interactions that I've seen him have with really any of the other kids so far, because I think... Max is able to recognize that Slake has that ability to quiet everybody down so that he can say his piece. Hmm. We're going to see that later on in this film. We haven't had a ton of interactions yet. I'm kind of saying it based on looking forward and looking back and trying to keep all of this movie straight. It's really tricky for me at this point. I think one interesting uh, is it with my my limited knowledge here, but comparing and all, all I have is really to compare um, these minutes of, of Mel Gibson to. Um, uh, Tom Hardy. Um, I felt like, yeah, in this minute, it feels like uh, that this mad, this Mad Max, this this Max of uh, of, of Mel Gibson seems to kind of try to. He says, "I'm not, I'm not the guy you 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 think I am. I don't want the leadership. I don't want to wear this hat. I don't want to be the patriarch of this group." But he seems to kind of let them down softly. Whereas from what I've seen with Fury Road, I feel like Tom Hardy would like put the hat down grunt no and leave you know <laughs> like he would he would be yeah. even more hardened of like no and he would just leave and he just he grab his bag he would grab his jacket or something and just kind of like just walk out and then as you said like these 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 leaders here but the guy the the, the shirtless guy with the staff would they would probably try to talk with him and he would be like no you kind of like you would like give them like two words at most. That's a good point because it's also a similar situation in the Road Warrior where he is requested to be their savior and he wants nothing to do with it. And he's also rather short about it. He doesn't let them down gently. He just says no and walks away. Mm -hmm. But with the kids, you're right. He is more gentle. He tries to explain himself. He tries to tell them how it is and. I think it really is the kids aspect that makes him a little bit softer in this scene mm -hmm. 
than in comparable scenes in other movies. Yeah. I want to <laughs> touch back to the minute real quick just to push us forward in the timeline here. As the picture is revealed and everybody starts chanting, all the kids stand up around Max. And then Slake walks over and he places a captain's hat, which has been salvaged and adorned with a bird. And he places it on Max's head. Now, I don't want to say that Max couldn't pull off the hat. I just feel like we've seen Max so often without a hat that for him to pick up a new accessory like that would be kind of weird. Mm -hmm. I'm saying Max without the hat better than with the hat. Of course. Speaking of the hat, that brings me to a, a note I had in the place that birds have in, I'm going to say, in, in the religion that these children have come up with. Um, we see, so there's there's a hat on, yeah, the captain's cap that they place on Max's head. Uh, Savannah has a bird uh, that she's wearing a sort of a headdress. Mm -hmm. And although that looks like, I'm guessing that was a flightless bird, but still a bird. So flight's kind of in there. We see feathers and I think other birds throughout these minutes. I think it's just sort of an interesting sociological or anthropological uh, sort of fiction that they've written, you know, for this group. That there's there's some depth there that we don't necessarily have to have that you can understand the movie and be entertained without it, but that they have they have produced this religion in this new society and having having a pilot as their sort of savior that it would make sense that out of nature birds would hold a special place being the animals that can fly that's sort of their spirit animal yeah this tribe strikes me as very orinthophilic mm -hmm. they love birds <laughs> yeah yes they have this mythology based around the idea of flying, and they seem to understand the concept of flying, but not necessarily the concept of artificial flight. Mm -hmm. In the book, it kind of outlines it a little bit better, defines it a little bit better, that they think that Captain Walker can actually physically fly mm. like a bird. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure that they understand that artificial flight is possible. They think that Captain Walker is going to fly them all away. Literally. Which yeah. is definitely the trouble with a group of children who have been isolated for a period of time defining their own religion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're completely devoted to this idea because Savannah looks down at Max wearing this hat and says, we's heartful to you, Captain Walker. And Slake says, we's ready now. Take us home. Like they're all in on the Max train. I have one thing, but I wanna, I'm going to save it for tomorrow. But yeah, it's, 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 you have this group of children. They see seem like good children they don't seem uh you know corrupted in any way and it's but yeah it's like the one thing they need is a home a homeland they don't want to be here and i'm not in any way going to compare this i'm just I'm just i'm just going to give you an honest opinion is kind is, is sort of don't and once again listeners don't get too upset with me uh it reminds me of Waterworld. once again don't get upset just <laughs> stay calm i don't want you to get upset at me i'm not saying that's uh, this is a one-to-one -one comparison. I'm just saying is that you have that mother and that child, and they're not corrupted by how Dennis Hopper's character was, but they both want the same thing. You know, he wants power and land, and essentially they just want a new life and land. And that's what these these children want. It's like they can they can survive here. It looks like they're doing fine, but they they want that. They they know that this land is not the best. They 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 know that enough. They're smart enough to know this land is not the best. We want to go to the land that the birds fly free and and. There's no sand or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting. Sand that is like to ocean <laughs> and water world. That's what I'm trying to make. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Too much of it. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that 
Costner just ripped this off and was like, okay, we're going to do Mad Max, but with water instead of sand. Honestly, in concept, that's not a horrible idea. An honest concept to say, look, we we don't want to know. We don't know where we are with the Mad Max franchise at this point. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the it's the mid 90s. And that idea of like doing a Western idea, but we do it in the ocean. I don't, once again, this is not where world minute. I understand that. <laughs> just saying a not conceptual yet. idea. That's an interesting idea. But both his apocalypse movies, this and Postman, did not work. Yeah, well, and, and, and I don't I don't think we're going to go too far down this road, but this is a long road if we want to in terms of the influence that this universe sort of Mad Max as a totality and particularly these, these three movies from the late 70s, early 80s, and even this in one in particular, Beyond Thunderdome, in terms of the popular culture idea of what a post-apocalyptic world looks like, that there are a lot of movies from the late 80s and the 90s and going forward that are very similar, that whether it's intentional or not, and, and, and maybe Rick and Julia as the experts, maybe you'll correct me and say that there's some other earlier movie that inspired this in terms of you know what what a wasteland is but since these were the kind of the first movies of this genre this po- you know post apocalyptic uh, civilization decaying anarchy type situation i attribute it to the mad max universe cuz it's the first place i encountered it but afterwards there's a lot of movies and, and other fictions that seem inspired by or using a you know kind of similar devices and, and one of the things i had in my note is an episode from rick and morty <laughs> where you have uh, from the third season rick mansing the stone yep. where Rick and Morty and Summer are transported to a Mad Max type world. And I think at this point in that show, it's an obvious homage. Mm. I think they're not even trying to hide the inspiration. And it's a wasteland. It's anarchy. It's might makes right. They even have a Thunderdome style fighting arena where they where they put people. Uh, you mean the Blood Dome? Oh, sorry. The Blood Dome, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Save it for the Semantics Dome, E.B. White. Ooh, burn. So this movie has obviously inspired a lot of other artists, I, or obvious to me, I think. And then one of the things that mentions that they kind of poke fun of in the Rick and Morty episode is the way grammar develops yeah. <laughs> in a post-apocalyptic world. And and I think we get a real taste of that whereas in in Bartertown, you know, they've got their own jargon, you know, every area has their own sort of accent and um, and slang for certain things, but their their grammar isn't as mangled or as far from ours. Um, I guess mangles kind of making a, a judgment. It's so it's not as different, but different not necessarily meaning better or worse, but the, you know we're getting a heavy dose of a different kind of grammar. And, you know, I think it's interesting. I think it's fun. But I also think it drives home the separation that obviously geographically, we can't be too far because Max made it, well, partially on horseback and then a very short distance after that when the horse fell down on foot. So we we can't be too far away from Bartertown. We're not quite sure which direction, but culturally, we are very far away. Oh, certainly. Yeah, they are incredibly isolated, and you definitely get a real good sense of how left to their own devices without a written form of language teaching that Mm -hmm. they've just slowly changed over the years. And getting back to the minute real quick, (laughs) Max has been hatted 
People have said that they are counting on him. And as he is sitting there with this hat, the music is being very inspirational. But Max stands up Mm -hmm. and the music almost wants to say, you got it, kids. Let's fly (laughs) back to civilization. But Max gets to his feet. He's visibly uncomfortable, probably wishes that he had been just left in the desert to die (laughs) instead of having to deal with all this stuff. And so he just takes off the hat, hands it back to Savannah and starts walking away. So Slake, understandably upset because this person that they dragged out of the desert that they thought would save them from their squalor grabs the hat back from Savannah, starts chasing after Max, and we get an example of that decayed speech pattern that you were talking about. He says, we kept it straight, everything marked, everything membered, and he forces the hat back into Max's hand, saying, no, you can't just drop us this quickly. And poor Slake, and probably the rest of the kids as well, Mm -hmm. he assumes it's because they didn't do it right. Mm, They made mistakes. Mm -hmm. They didn't tell the story correctly, or they got it wrong. Something, they think it's their fault that Max is walking away. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that is, especially in a religious context, that is horrifying. You devote yourself to a deity, and then he turns his back on you in your particular time of proving yourself. That is really, really rough. Yeah, that would be like living your entire life as a Scientologist, and then Lord Xenu comes back to the Earth, and he's like, oh, hey, everybody, my name's not Xenu, it's Frank, and y'all got it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not thetaning you or anything like that because you got my story wrong. Yeah, if if, if really Jesus came down and was like, you guys got the New Testament all wrong, like, ah, and he's just pissed, we'd be like, oh, sorry, we we, we thought this was the right way you wanted us to, 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 to tell the story of how you... And he's like, no, I'm, uh, I'm out of here. And you're like, no. <laughs> we, we, it's a lot of years we devoted to this, man. But we built a lot of buildings. <laughs> we <laughs> put so much emotional capital into this belief. Yeah. And to have it thrown back in their face. Yeah. It's upsetting. Yeah. What I, I think it's really, this ties back to, Dave, you mentioned Lord of the Flies earlier. And so mm-hmm. just wondering, like, what's what's the difference? What's why? Why do you get Lord of the Flies in one case where they're running around trying to kill Piggy versus this looks like a relatively stable, peaceful coexistence, a little society that they've built and it's it's not anarchy and it's not just survival of the fittest. And I think part of that is, oh, I hate to say this (laughs) as an atheist. I hate to say, I think it's religion, this religion that has kept them together and having Walker as a type of God, something to look forward to, something to organize their life, that threat of, or maybe threat's not the right word, but just the idea that Captain Walker's coming back and we need to be ready. So we need to be on our toes and we need to be keeping, you know, keeping it right. So we're ready when he comes back. And and yeah, and it's like like uh, like you said, it is like the second coming. Your deity has returned and he's telling you, you've got it all wrong. Organized religion provides a lot more to a community than just a place to put your faith or things to believe in. It provides organization and unity and support systems mm-hmm. that I think really help them to be a community their religion i wouldn't call it an organized religion it it certainly could be more organized but it's functioning in a similar way yeah it brings them all together they have this common story they all have a purpose yes they all have a purpose they all Mm -hmm. have a reason to work together to continue on 
yeah, religion really does a lot for a community. And it does seem there there is a certain, I mean, we don't see too much of their day-to-day activities. How do they, you know, how do they hunt and do they forage for for vegetables or fruit or berries and, and stuff. But I, I do get the feeling, yeah, there is a there is a division of labor. There is some specialization within this community. Slake is the lead hunter. Mm-hmm. There are gatherers. There are fishers. There are other specializations. I'm pretty sure Screwloose takes care of the bones mm-hmm. because he stores all the bones up in his grotto. I'm pretty sure Mr. Skyfish is called Mr. Skyfish because he's the flight expert, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. In yeah, the tribe, yeah. Gecko seems to be their appointed radio guy because he's got all the. No, they have no idea what that means. Exactly, but he's their guy anyways. So, uh, Julian Rick, do you know when writing this, George Miller and and Hayes? Do you know if did they consult sociologists or did they research sort of primitive cultures? How did they come up with this? This society, this structure uh, for this group. Do you know? Is, is, you know, is there any science behind it, or did they just kind of make it up? We do not know for sure if they consulted anybody. I would guess that they did not. The level of sociology analysis going on seems to be on a level that Rick and I, without too much digging and looking for help online and whatnot, are able to understand. So I think that it's at the same level where Miller and Hayes could write it just from their own heads, from their own observations. Mm-hmm. So I don't think so. Okay. I think one of the reasons Max A doesn't want the leadership, B wants to leave, and C doesn't want to like cause him too much grief is he's like, oh, you guys are doing so well without adult yeah. like supervision. <laughs> yeah. I don't want you. To, he's like, I don't want to. I don't want to set you on a different path. It's like. I'd rather you guys just live, wait for us adults to die off, and then you can have like a new peaceful society somewhere. Yes. Like that's how yes. I'm I'm thinking it. He's like, no, God, because if you go out there and you run into the next, you know, Lord uh that was a humongous guy, right? Is that what his name was? <laughs> yeah. The... Yep. Lord yes. Humongous. Yeah, it's like if you run into one of these guys, you're gonna get enslaved or you're gonna turn get turned into like the war boys that we see in and in, in Fury Road. It's he's like, No, you're doing you're doing well just i want to get out of here and you guys just keep doing what you're doing wait for all, all of us old people that like caused this this apocalypse to just die off yeah i like that idea because slake as i mentioned earlier is really upset he says we kept it straight and max turns around and says yeah you kept it real good you ain't been slack at all which leads gecko to pipe up then why are we waiting for it? and max says very frankly you got the wrong guy i'm not your savior i'm not the one that's going to lead you to a bright tomorrow because max has seen the world of today yeah and i think it's changed him too much mm-hmm. like max has too much pain in his past and yes the whole point of the second movie was that he went out into the wasteland and he learned to live again. And so this is an evolved Max who was hurt in the first movie, healed in the second movie, and is now existing in the third movie. But he still doesn't feel that he has the savior credentials to be their Captain Walker. I think he knows right and wrong, but I think he is worried. He's like, I am, I'm almost scared of myself that I'm going to put you in harm's way on some unnecessary personal vendetta quest thing or... You know, yeah, we're going to run into a tribe and my first idea is going to be we're going to, have to, you know, take their supplies and kill them or something. Like, I think he's worried that I may put you on a path of violence. And now you're you're all working together and not and, and you you may be 
become violent. And Max has the habit of making powerful enemies mm -hmm. and people around him die. Mm -hmm. His wife and child were killed by a gang that he didn't necessarily square off with throughout the course of the movie, but he was tangentially related to killing a member of them. But basically, people that he cared about were killed by his enemies in the first movie. Well, in the second movie, he didn't necessarily care about the compound dwellers to that same extent, but the people around him were still slaughtered. Mm. People die when they hang around Max, and he doesn't want those children to die because they're in close proximity to him. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, he's like, their best situation is just to kind of just keep living in this cave and, and, and doing what you're doing, and then when all of us olders are just died off, you can... You know, you could probably restart civilization. Uh, hopefully, yeah, the children will be better. And you, you know, the, the, the children are, are our future. future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no one talks about that. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that, Sean. Because we all need a little more Whitney Houston in our lives. Exactly. Mr. Skyfish says, quit joshing, Captain. I didn't know the term joshing until college. Hmm. True. And I had a roommate from Florida, and she said it all the time. And now I say it. <laughs> and I like the term. I don't know what it is about it, but I like using that term. Well, you know, Josh's are typically dishonest and sly individuals. Absolutely. So yeah. therefore, <laughs> joshing would be someone who is being dishonest with you. Oh, okay. Do I'll I even know a Josh? Do well, you know a Josh? I'm dropping all Josh's. In my day-to-day -day interactions, I would say no. I have known Josh's in the past, though. And that's where you're going to keep him in the past. I'm racking my brain if I have ever. <laughs> Are you trying to find people in your past who have like. Shout out to uh, Five Minutes of Bonsai and Josh Horowitz. <laughs> you just, you deceitful master you. That. We know it. So. <laughs> but sure. The man's always trying to cause trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Five minutes at a time. It may sound like I'm saying that everyone named Josh is a deceitful bastard, but that's not <laughs> what I'm saying. And that's not what the term joshing means. It's kind of funny to think that though, isn't it? Well, yes. <laughs> All right. Now so. the next time I meet someone named Josh, I'm going to be super skeptical of them. I'm just going to like start squinting at them and be like, really? Really? Are you just joshing? Yes. So is that not, now I'm wondering, is that not politically correct? Should we not be saying? Is this like their word, joshing? like Josh can use that word, but since we're not Josh's, we can't, <laughs> oh, we can't be allowed. saying that term? We have to use the This J episode's going to have a lot of bleeps when it comes Instead out. Instead of joshing. <laughs> I think we might be safe. Yeah, I think we're fine. So Mr. Skyfish is using Florida slang. Gecko says, yeah, catch the wind. And Anna Goanna pipes up yelling, we got to see Tomorrow Morrowland. These three children shouting at Max spark off a blaze that is going to start off Wednesday's Minute. All of the kids are going to join in on the shouting match. It's going to be very loud, very confusing, just mm. awful, just awful. <laughs> Not going to like it. What's nice is that Wednesday's Minute is going to start off with Max just laying the truth smack down on these kids. He's going yeah. to tell them all about how their dreams are <laughs> gone in a pile of ash and that Santa Claus isn't real and that there's no Tooth Fairy, no Easter Bunny, all that other stuff it's gonna be great but before we go <laughs> sean and dave where can people find more of your stuff on the internet all right well uh sean and i you know we have a lot of fun we're over at <laughs> groundhog minute we talk about bill murray and just you know what happens if you're repeating the days over and over again um i like to talk about mystery men on my own little my own little show five minutes of mystery sean i mean 
I mean, lay it out, Sean. You got so much. Yeah. So I, I've got my own side thing going on in the podcast world as well. Uh, I call it Five Minutes of Mime. And it's about mime and silent performance and other performing arts. And each episode is five minutes. And so I call it Five Minutes of Mime. No, Josh. No, no. <laughs> no, no J word about it. <laughs> Come back on Wednesday for Max giving the kids a real taste of wasteland cynicism, but we are going to find that his uncanny throwing ability is going to completely undermine everything that he has to say. Come for the shouting children, stay for the frisbee throwing, I guess. We's ready, take us home. (laughs) The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link Join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 58 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time. Everybody!